Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm excited to say that today is another installment of the Big T Trauma Series. So we initially published this series a couple years ago, and apparently a few people actually liked it, so we are back with more. The Big T Trauma Series offers clinically-oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. So some of our past topics in this uh, a series have included transfusion medicine for the trauma surgeon. We've covered gun violence. We've talked about neck injuries. And the information presented in these episodes is designed for surgical trainees, but it really is appropriate for anyone with an interest in trauma surgery. And that includes medical students, advanced practice providers, and nurses. Now, the series gets its name from the University of Texas in Houston, the busiest trauma center in the country, and a place where you often hear the term Big T coined by none other than Dr. Brian Cotton, professor of surgery and fellowship director at UT Houston. And Dr. Cotton is joining us today, as is Dr. Teddy Puzio, one of my great friends and former co-fellows, now faculty at UT, and Rashad Dev, currently a second-year fellow at UT Houston. Welcome, everyone. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Patrick. All right, Teddy, why don't you tell us about what this episode is all about? Set the stage. Sure. All right. So we have compiled a list of scenarios that we consider common pitfalls in trauma. So these are the cases that, you know, the wrong decision leads to you standing up in front of a podium presenting an M&M. You know, one of my favorite quotes back from my training was the eyes do not see what the mind does not know. A good one. And when you when you really take that in, you step back, you think about kind of the big picture, you realize that this is really core to all of our training and the basis for the episode. You don't know what you don't know. So you have to be able to recognize it when you see it. I love that. The eyes do not see what the mind does not know. That's perfect. So let's start with a a fairly common scenario. So uh, Deb, you have a 20 year old male who presents to the ED with a gunshot wound to the left buttock. He's hemodynamically stable. He has no peritonitis. Why don't you walk us through the initial workup for a GSW to the buttock? Sure. For this patient and primarily all patients with GSWs, you know, I'm going to start with a detailed uh, primary and secondary service survey. And my primary attention would be to look for holes um, on the patient, marking them. Uh, Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So he has one ballistic wound to the left buttock. Okay. Well, if that was the case, I'd expect there to be a retained bullet somewhere. And for that point, I'd be following up with abdominal and pelvic x-rays as well as a detailed rectal exam. All right, so a couple of things here that I would, I would probably add, and this is something that comes back to my fellowship, is that you need to define the, the trajectory before you can figure out what is injured from an anatomic standpoint. And one of the rules that you also need to know in this is that it should always be an even number. Always needs to be an even number. There's only three reasons that the number of holes and the number of bullets is gonna be odd. You are missing a hole, you are missing a bullet, or you missed something in the H&P and they've been shot before. So they've got a retained uh, foreign body. So anatomic uh, injury is defined by trajectory determination. So I'm going to want to look and get multiple x-rays. And I would add one thing that Dev said is I always start with what's going to kill them. And if the bullet hits them in the ass and traverses, and I've had this before, and ends up in their chest where it's going to get something that might make them die quicker, I always start with a chest x-ray. They're shot in the thigh or the ass. 
I always start with the chest X-ray and I work my way down until I found every hole and every bullet. Yeah, truly amazing where uh, these uh, bullets can go. Uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to fathom. So so great point. Holes come in pairs. Okay, this patient, they have one hole in the left buttock and a bullet seen in the right pelvis on x-ray. There's no blood on rectal exam. Dev, what's your next step? Well, uh, at this point, the vitals are stable, and I'm not concerned for any kind of peritonitis or emergency uh, immediately. I'll proceed to the CT scanner where I could probably get a better idea of the trajectory of the bullet. And at the same time for that CT scan, I'd be sure to be uh, doing IV and rectal contrast. Okay. So the bullet crosses the pelvis from right to left, uh, avoiding all vessels and trajectory appears close to the rectum, but there is no contrast extravasation. So, so Dev, stable transpelvic gunshot wound, no evidence of bowel injury on a CT. You said your rectal exam was negative. So just, OBS is patient overnight? Uh, that would be the easy thing, but that's the common pitfall here. Uh, the actual workup to rule out true rectal injury is to perform not only a CT, but to also perform a rectal, I'm sorry, a procto. Right. And this comes from just, again, making sure you miss things and things are going to kill people. There's been good work behind this, looking at it, looking at a AAST working group, multi-institutional study showing that patients with traumatic rectal injuries, CT scan will miss a lot of these things. CT with rectal contrast can help identify it. But to me, Patrick, it's almost like penetrating neck injury and just doing uh, esophagram or just doing an esophagoscopy. The combination of the two is going to really get you to a point where you are not missing things. And that's where we do it here. We've got anatomic injury suspected down there. The CT is clean. They're still going to go upstairs and they're still going to get a, a, a Examiner anesthesia, a little anoscopy, and a, and a uh, rectosigmoidoscopy rigid. Yeah. So, but <clears throat> what if we? What if you just admitted this patient to OBS and you didn't, you know, didn't do the procto and you missed an extra peritoneal rectal injury? Is that a problem? Yeah, very big problem. These patients can develop sepsis, uh, severe pelvic sepsis, which can lead to which can lead to death eventually. Yeah, bad bad news. So let's just say this patient will keep going. They, they had a full thickness rectal injury that you saw on your procto. Uh, it was about eight centimeters from the anal verge. So um, Dr. Cotton, what, what would you do for this? Well, what I would do is I would do a small incision over this guy. Again, I don't know what his body habitus is, but if, if that body habitus would allow a small, almost an anti-McBurney's uh, incision on the opposite side, like you're doing an open appy back in the day. Uh, a little left to lower quadrant incision, find the tinea, bring it up, and do a diverting loop colostomy. In addition, uh, not only are you making a very small incision and not violating and give them a big full-on laparotomy, you're also making it easy for yourself or your partners, if you work in a group practice, so when they take them back, they don't have to do a big hookup, big laparotomy, redo, redo, and, and hook things up. All they need to do is fire a stapler down that channel close it up and drop it back in. So you're making that takedown of that colostomy with the loop colostomy a lot easier. And then again, knowing you've got that contaminated field, uh, again, depending on what kind of a, a process you have or associated maybe fractures of the pelvis, I'm thinking about antibiotics for a brief course. What about, uh, you know, there's some limited data to suggest that you may not have to divert all these patients um, or even possibly just repair. What do you feel about that? So again, if, I, if I've got a full thickness injury, uh, that I cannot ex access. And again, I've, I've done several of them more in the lower rectum and, and, and the anal canal. I'm absolutely going to try to repair those full thickness through it. Uh, you can get a nice star retractor. If you haven't used those, you can get familiar with it. 
or you can yeah. use several of the uh, other anoscopy trays. Get familiar with whatever your colorectal guys use to get into that canal. Uh, get in there, repair it, do a good, get good bites. And then I'm just going to start them on a low residue diet and not going to divert them. But if I can't get to it, I cannot repair it and feel like I've got good bites of it. That's when I'm doing a diverting loop colostomy. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing that you may read about is presacral drainage. It's kind of a, I've never seen that done. Yeah. Right? As, as, as my good friend, Oscar Gilmandegi uh, at Vanderbilt would say, we're only going to mention it to condemn it. Yeah. Uh, and so we pretty much are not going to be doing presacral drains. The only thing you're going to be getting a presacral drain is if you're getting in that space to really debride something where you've got a horrible like a abscess open yeah, and a big, bad, nasty associated concomitant pelvic fracture, something like that. Perfect. Perfect. So that wraps up trauma pitfall. Number one, don't miss an extra peritoneal rectal injury because you skipped the proctoscopy. So this applies to penetrating and blunt injuries. So next uh, we have a 29 year old female who was in a car crash three days ago. Her injuries include facial fractures, left-sided rib fractures, clavicle fracture, scapula fracture, and pulmonary contusions. And you are called to her bedside for altered mental status. So Deb, you're back up, you examine her and you find that she is not moving her right side. Yeah, so this is actually very concerning for a stroke. Um, and so what I'll do is I'd make sure to actually go back and I'd look through all of her original imaging, um, all the CTs that were done, and make sure that she actually had a CTA, CT angiogram of the neck. And even in that scenario, if she had gotten one on her initial trauma workup, I'd actually consider repeating it and getting a CT brain with confusion protocol as well. Right. So straight to the pitfall here, this patient is having a stroke from missed blunt cerebrovascular injury. So these are injuries that uh, occur to the carotid or vertebral arteries. And uh, it's important to recognize that neurologic deficits may not be present at the uh, time of presentation as up to half of patients develop neurologic symptoms over 12 hours after their injury. So Teddy, can you go over why this patient should have had a CTA of the neck? Yeah. So you know, the overall rate of BCVI in blunt trauma patients is low, about 0.01%. But when you apply screening guidelines, um, this the rate of injury that you actually see is about 1%. So a, a pretty big jump. And, you know, there's several different screening guidelines out there to pair, depending on where you look, but most of them use the Denver criteria. Um, you know, if, if we were following the Denver criteria for this patient, she should have had a CTA of her neck kind of on admission. Right. And then, you know, there's different groups out there looking at, there's a Denver criteria, there's a Memphis group. Uh, and, and again, which there's a lot of indications on who should have gotten it. I think this one's an easy one and no brainer. I'll tell you that in a second, but I'll tell you that there's some people out there. If you ask them, even within our own group is who should get a CTA in the neck. And the answer from that attending is, do they have a neck? Uh, and that's pretty much based on the fact <laughs> he was trained in Memphis. And so that's, there's a, they, the more you look, the more you're going to find. And I, you know, some people look at it like himself. He looks at it as what is the worst thing that can happen if you miss an injury? And the worst thing that can happen is what she's having. She's having a stroke. Especially you got a young person, you add that to what should be a, a pretty routine trauma recovery, and now they're devastated. They're neurologically devastated. Yeah. Never work again, most likely. I mean, the, and the sad thing is it's a young person yeah. that you can, and the treatment is aspirin right. and or heparin. Right. And that's, that's one of the tragic things, too. Just like what Teddy just said, uh, Patrick, is 
most of the, the horrendous strokes we've had have surprisingly not been in the elderly. Most of these have been young, healthy people, a lot of them female, uh, and they just have these devastating strokes. Uh, so again, getting back to the criteria, a lot of them, she's a high energy mechanism. She's not a fall. She wasn't an assault. Uh, and she has a traumatic brain injury with a lot of high energy trauma to the face and neck area, whether it's clavicles, whether it's face, C-spine, things like that. Anything in that general area, that patient's going to get a CTA at our institution. Yeah. And, and well, important to point out, you know, our institution at UT Houston and Patrick, I know where you are too at Wake Med. Lots of others have kind of developed guidelines for screening these patients that incorporate the Denver criteria. Right, right. Teddy, and you mentioned that increased screening finds more injuries. So how does this actually help improve outcomes? You've kind of alluded to it before. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's all about early diagnosis and starting treatment. So if you, again, the eyes do not see what the mind does not know. If you don't look, if you don't know to look, you're not going to know that this patient has a BCVI. And, and as we said, they can have devastating, like lifelong effects. So we find it early, we treat it early, and we can prevent, reduce the risk of stroke and death. Right. And, and treatment's mostly antithrombotic therapy like aspirin and heparin, uh, uh, not necessarily interventional. So, so that concludes trauma pitfall number two, missed blunt cerebrovascular injury. Remember to screen with a CTA of the neck when indicated. These are good guys. I like these. Let's go on to the next case. Uh, you get called by the intern about a patient on the floor having abdominal pain. The patient was admitted yesterday morning following an MVC rollover. She was found to have a grade two spleen injury uh, without any active bleeding, three rib fractures, and a chance fracture of her lumbar spine. She had a small amount of free fluid in the pelvis on the original CT scan attributed to her splenic injury. Dev, what is a chance fracture? Yeah, um, chance fractures. They're, they're fractures that occur at about at around the thoracolumbar region. Um, they're typically caused by a flexion distraction type uh, mechanism and uh, most of the time they're high energy and they're horizontal in nature in the setting that the fracture pattern actually occurs from a posterior uh, to anterior mechanism through the spinous process involving, you know, it can involve the pedicles, the vertebral body, um, uh, it can actually relate to some devastating um, intra-abdominal injuries. So, yeah, but Dev, why do we, why is this important injury to us? We're all trauma surgeons. None of us actually operate on spine fractures. Right. You know, what's funny, I actually asked the resident this the other night we were on call because we had this exact scenario. So what is, why is a chance fracture important? Because it allows us the chance to operate, honestly. It, it, it's a fracture that can be associated with up to 50% risk. <laughs> Not where the risk name of, came from. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it, it's, it's associated with about a 50% risk of bowel injury. Nice, nice. And again, this is one where Patrick, there's getting back to some of the other scenarios, there's a, a large spectrum of approaches to this. And it needs to be what your tolerance for that complication is, as we talked before. You can go anywhere from serial abdominal exams, but again, harder to do in a busy center where you, you may not ever see that patient again on a busy, busy night. So all the way to just lapping everybody. And in between is where we've kind of come up with, and we'll talk a little about here in a second, I suspect, is sticking a scope in and kind of ruling out that there's nothing going on. And always feeling very unapologetic that I you know, create a little periumbilical incision, stick a scope in and go, ah, nothing there, pull it out, we're done. But otherwise, that is a big deal to miss these. And again, you know, this patient comes in, she's got a grade two spleen, got some other stuff. That's usually probably not going to cause any amount of, of, of fluid in that abdomen. So always thinking that I've got a hollow viscous injury in that. And 
one of the things to take away from this is also the triad, the 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 waddles, not the waddles triad, but the but the but the seatbelt triad. You got a seatbelt injury across the abdominal wall, which a lot of times I'll tell you in our center, and Patrick, you know this having trained here, that's associated with a pretty nasty abdominal wall hernia uh, and <laughs> transection of some abdominal wall muscles, and you get a bowel injury, and you get the chance fracture. So anytime I see the, the chance tri-factor. fracture. It's making me think yeah. about those other things yeah. and, and and knowing what we're going to have to deal with when we get in there. And and kind again, of when you think, and that you can kind of think of it in the the chest. Similarly, the trifecta is sternum, aorta, and thoracic spine chance fracture. Yeah, but exactly, we're talking about abdomen here, right? Again, these things happen happen in, in threes, and you need to think about every all the all the tissues in between the skin and that 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 chance fracture itself. So, um, Cotton, you mentioned um, a tool that you can maybe use to help decide on whether or not the patient has a bowel injury. And I, I think if we have to do our due diligence and kind of shout out to one of our partners, Dr. Michelle McNutt. She developed a prospectively validated tool called the BIP score, uh, also known as the bowel injury prediction score. So they first created it in a retrospective fashion, and then they recently um, published it after having validated in a multi-center prospective study. So there's three components. So um, you look for white blood cell count greater than 17,000, number two, abdominal tenderness, and number three, CT scan findings with a mesenteric contusion or a hematoma with bowel thickening um, or an inner loop fluid collection. So if you total up those three and they have two or more of those features, uh, that gives you about a 72% sensitivity and a 78% sense of uh, specificity for a bowel injury. So, I mean, the score is not perfect, but nothing in medicine is obviously, um, but it helps you kind of when you're on the fence and you say, well, maybe, and their BIP score is three, plus they, you know, that's the patient we're going to stick a scope. Right. In a you say at. maybe, you say maybe throwing that laparoscope, uh, worst thing that happens is a couple five millimeter incisions. All right. Next case, Dev, a uh, 27 year old male, uh, they come in with a stab wound to the left nipple. He is hemodynamically stable. What are your next steps? Yep. Uh, just like every trauma, detailed primary, detailed secondary survey. But on this patient, I'd be getting, I'd be very quick to go straight to my x-ray with a pericardial fast. Yeah. So chest x-ray shows a large left hemoneumothorax. The fast is negative. Uh, so you put in a chest tube, you get 800 cc's of blood out. So how much blood in the chest tube warrants a trip to the operating room, would you say? Yeah, right. So, I mean, traditionally, you know, we, we've been taught an immediate output of 1,500 or more. How many times have you uh, shaken the shaken the chest tube, right? You're <laughs> oh, like, 1,500. <laughs> I see oh, it. 1,450. Go, go, go. It's right there. It's going. But, yeah, definitely another chance to operate if it's more than 1,500. Um, or if you're looking at the output being, you know, anywhere between 350 to 400 cc's an hour, uh, over the next few hours, that's that's the sign that you need to be being somewhere other than the trauma bay and in the operating room. Right. So again, these are these are kind of you know set up answers, safe answers, book answers. But you need to follow these patients clinically, and you need to lo- use what I again with. And again, Patrick probably remembers it from from training that your re- your own rectal manometry. You want to know what that sphincter tone is in your ass that gets you into the operating room or not. It kind of guides you. And I've had people with a lot less than, than a liter and a half, as much as maybe just 800 cc's coming out that are unstable that I'm taking to the OR and not apologizing for. 
But then I've got other ones that come in. Maybe they're a delayed fashion. They present 12 hours out and they put the chest tube in and we get two liters out. I've sat on them. They're alert. They're awake, making sense. The output's pretty high volume at first, but then it drifts off pretty quickly. Uh, and again, those are some things to think about. As far as on the other extremes, making sure, like, like, like Teddy was saying, make sure those chest tubes, you're agitating them, making sure those things are clotting off and making sure you're getting a really honest uh, assessment of that. And that's one way I do that is to make sure I get a follow-up chest x-ray to make sure not only that my chest tube's not in a goofy position, uh, but that, you know, that it's, it's been draining and doing what it was put into it. Yeah. You can, you could put out 800 in your chest tube and then it clots off and your chest x-ray is whited out and the rest of the blood is still in the chest. Yeah, and you got attention hemothorax, right, right? Yeah. So treat the patient clinically. Right. And, and, and for this case, Dev's uh, sphincter tone was quite lax. Uh, the patient is in fact, <laughs> hemodynamically stable, and this patient goes to do the uh, CT scanner. And the scan shows a small locule of air underneath underneath the left diaphragm and moderate left hemothorax without active extrav, and you can't see any real significant lung injury for that matter. So you decide to take the patient to the OR for a diagnostic laparoscopy uh, to take a look at that diaphragm. But uh, wah, 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 on induction, bum, she, bum, actually, bum. she actually codes. So, Teddy, this is terrible. What did we miss? Yeah. So the patient should have gotten a pericardial window um, up front with plans for a possible sternotomy. So this is something we always, always harp on, especially at a place where we see a lot of penetrating trauma is never, never, never trust a negative pericardial fast to completely rule out a cardiac injury in a patient, especially if they have a, a left-sided hemothorax. Um, the whole, I mean, you think about, well, why, why, right? It should be you should have a positive pericardial fast with a cardiac injury. Well, no, because whatever penetrated into the heart went through the pericardium. So um, this can allow blood to actually just go into the chest and not accumulate. I'll, yeah, I'll add to that, Teddy, real quick, in that everything, and again, you guys know this from rounds with me in the ICU, the three ways we practice medicine, fact, fiction, and F-ups. Uh, I've seen this one. I've read about it. I've got fact. Grace Riziki's initial article looking at an ultrasound uh, of the heart and looking in the, in, in the abdomen and showing that false negative rates for pericardial violation on fast were in the presence of usually a left-sided hemothorax, but can also be a right-sided hemothorax. So anytime there's blood in the chest, I don't really care what their fast shows, unless it's positive. If it's positive, it's positive. If it's negative, it's not negative until I've really truly worked it up and evaluated and interrogated that chest. And then yeah. again, the F up part, that comes from having witnessed a patient that had it, had exactly what I just described to you, what you just described, Patrick. They had a CAT scan. It looked okay. Chest tube was draining. They went to the floor and they coded. And they ended up emergently getting taken to the OR, ended up dying, and had a, had a wound to their heart. So this is a, one of those that we learn from, and it's it's one that you need to take and, 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 fi- and figure out what your how you're going to weigh risk-benefit and potential harm and, and good of, of taking people to the OR and being okay with a negative pericardial window. And maybe you're doing more windows than other people in the group versus doing less windows with the potential of missing something. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fascinating when you think about it, really, uh, if you take a non-medical person who hasn't been, you know, uh, had these, these workup algorithms jammed in their head that you have to make a hole to get it into the heart. And that hole, hole has to go through the, through the pericardium, whether a bullet, a stab, whatever. And so you wonder, you know, why does this actually not happen more, right? I mean, you have a hole in the pericardium through which it can decompress. And, and I think it happens more than, than we all think. And that's why 
uh, that we, we made this pitfall number four, penetrating chest injuries with negative pericardial fast does not necessarily rule out a cardiac injury. I feel like it's a common uh, um, oral board scenario too, right? This is the classic trap. So remember this one. All right, let's move on to the last case for this episode. A transabdominal gunshot wound is taken to the OR for X-Lab. There's injuries to the stomach, the small bowel, and liver, and they're all repaired. Uh, and the, initially, the patient does quite well. However, it's now post-operative day number four. He's now nauseous, he's tachycardic, and he's beginning to get hypotensive, and his abdomen is a bit tender on exam. So a CT scan is ordered, and this shows free fluid and free air, but no obvious source. So, Dev, what's your next step? Oh, yeah, this is this is an easy answer. We're going back to the OR. <laughs> Caught a case. It's not a good chance to operate. Sa- sadly, that's, very sad. that's correct. So, but you, so this guy, um, you open the abdomen, Dev, and you find a bunch of bile tinge succus so what where'd we go wrong yeah so this is probably one of the one of the first things i learned to reevaluate when it came to fellowship actually is this was a missed small bowel injury and this this was just because the small bowel in and of itself was just not ran in its entirety with detail and looking at and just honestly attention to detail looking for all the little little points along the bowel and its mesentery because those small holes, man, they, yeah. they will manifest themselves. You know, I mean, it was maybe ran in its entirety, air quotes, but probably not closely enough. And we've talked about it, like, there's not really a trauma laparotomy where you run the valve once and you think you're done, especially so, so, in, go ahead. Eddie, how, how do you, so how do you, how do you run the valve? What are you talking about, actually? What makes this, what makes it? a true running of the bowel, what kind of stuff are you doing? What instrument, you know, laparotomy pads and flipping it. Tell us a little more about it. Yeah. So you um, always start at the ligament of trites and you systematically look at each side. So you look at the side towards you, you look at the side away from you, flipping it back and forth. And then you move um, in a short segment, looking at every single piece. Now, I think it's important to point out the, you know, how closely you do this and how much time you put into this depends on the mechanism, right? Like if, if you have someone that was shot and have this huge bullet that ripped through their abdomen, you're not going to really miss injuries, right? But the times that I've seen where things are missed is with the stab wound, right? Because you can, you think about it, if they have a teeny tiny stab to their small bowel and you're putting your finger on it, even if you're systematically trying to look at everything, you can put your finger over that that knife wound and miss it. So that's why I think you got to look at it multiple, multiple times. Well, and, I, and I do think again, you know, Deb changed his ways. Deb changed his practice based on the third F again. He, you know, he had an F up, he missed an injury. There was a return to the OR and now he runs it a little bit more careful, even though he was running it careful before he's going to run it just a little bit more careful. And one way that we also try to teach our guys and girls to do it is to have two sets of eyes. It's, I want to see what you're flipping when you're flipping back and forth and you're showing me those different folds of the small bowel. I want to see it and you want to see it. We both need to have both of our sets of eyeballs on it and don't go too fast that I'm not able to see it. Because if you're doing it, then I haven't run the bowel with you and you haven't gotten two sets of eyes. You've gotten one. And if you're doing it too fast for me to see it, you're probably doing it too fast for yourself to really look at it. So take your time with it. It's not anything to, to screw around with. I think you've really got to take your time around the bow so you don't miss it. It's, yeah, it's one of those things that we as faculty harp on, right? Because it's fine until it's not fine. Yeah. And then it's that one time. But you should walk away from a trauma rotation as a general surgery resident knowing how to do this. And you need to get down and make sure you're seeing 
within within reasons, you get to see all that leaf of that mesentery too, because you're going to have some bucket handle deformities that maybe aren't dealing with it right now, but they've got a, a, a mesenteric tear that's hemostatic at the time that's hemostatic until, like Teddy said, it's not hemostatic. So what about, uh, I mean, that's the bowel. Let's, uh, Cotton, why don't you go through some of the other, you know, classic trauma laparotomy missed injuries that we've, right. <laughs> we've seen or heard right. about. Right. Over and the again, years. I'll come back to the third <laughs> F that we talked about. Uh, diaphragm is the, probably the one of the more common ones, especially in, in 2021 uh, with pan scans. That's still going to be one that doesn't show up well. Uh, I had one I missed uh, and had a good CAT scan but I didn't pull up all those uh, coronals and I finally did it, pulled it up at M&M and it was obvious that there was an injury. So now looking at all those different images, looking at all the different windows and really paying attention to that, especially when you think everything's a high five and you're done. It's also something to do intra-op when you're doing that laparotomy. You're putting that hand up into each of the hemidiaphragms, your partner or whoever's opposite the table is doing the same damn thing and you're not missing it and you're really staying on top of it because they can, they can present pretty uh, pretty horribly when they do present. Um, other things, again, getting the back of that look of the stomach, you look, oh, stomach looks okay, I'm cool with it. No, you're not. You, you incise it, you get into the lesser sac, you get a sweetheart retractor, a deaver, something, you pull it up, you look at that back wall. Sometimes what I like to do is actually get the OG or NG and kind of use that and slide it along the greater curvature and use that kind of as a handle to flip the stomach back and forth. I also do that when I'm looking for short gastrics that have been avulsed uh, off the spleen during an injury, whether I take that spleen out or not, to get those short gastrics and tie them off to kind of follow the curve. That's another thing. And then obviously the retroperitoneum that some people just go, oh yeah, it's just, this is blunt. We don't need to look at it. Well, maybe you do. And definitely you need to look at it and penetrate. Uh, you got to look back there. You got to exclude injury. And again, it gets back to trajectory determination, defining anatomic yeah. injury. You got ureters back there. You got things called the aorta and the IBC back there. You've got a lot of stuff that can get injured. It's surprising that you can have an aortic injury and it is a stable retroperitoneal hematoma. Oh, and we've had that recently in the last year where it was an underwhelming thing. They mobilized it, but didn't mobilize it enough. And then, you know, yada, 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 they're back in the OR with a, you know, posterior aortic injury and they're fixing that. So you gotta, you gotta really be comfortable with what that penetrating trajectory is. Otherwise, you're not done until you're, until you're fully mobilized. All right. These are fantastic points. And that wraps up our first of two episodes covering pitfalls in trauma. So now, you know, don't let it happen to you and be sure to tune in next week for part two. So until next time, dominate the, dominate day. the day. Until next time, dominate the day.